0: How many of you, this is your first time being back here since before the Christmas break? Quite a few. Okay, so uh, just to catch you up, we have jumped back into 1 Peter, which is what we were in before the Advent season began. So we're uh, just beginning chapter 3 here this morning. And I'll try to catch you up a little bit on where we've been in chapter 2, because chapter 2 is pretty foundational, Uh, but that's going to come out. As I, as I move forward here in the text. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 is where we're at today. And uh, I've titled the sermon Enduring Marriage. And I have to say that the sermon title today, that's funny. It's actually, that's appropriate, because the sermon title is a bit of a double entendre, all right? So as we think about uh, the idea of enduring marriage, you can, you can read that as marriages that endure, right? an enduring marriage, or you can also read it like, oh Lord, I need to endure this marriage. <laughs> and both are appropriate, both are appropriate to the text, uh, because I think that's what Peter is writing into. He's writing into to address the married folks in the congregation, and in um, some of them it's really about, as Christians, learning to have a, a godly Christian marriage, and for others it's about enduring an ungodly one, all right? So that's the, the sermon title today. I'm just going to go ahead and read the text, and, uh, and then I'll, I'll begin to uh, uh, tell you some thoughts that I have about the text, and then we'll, uh, we'll exposit it together. Let's look down at the text. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, Father, as we... uh, examine what you've said to us here through your servant Peter but I pray that you help us to understand what it is exactly that you're saying to us and father that in all of it Lord it it points us to Jesus and helps us to conform to his image Lord thank you that you've given us your word may we submit ourselves to you as we read it I pray that in Jesus name amen all right so I just read for you today's text and I'm going to make some comments here's here's my my initial thoughts as I read this I've been a preaching pastor for a fairly long time now and so when I read a text uh, whether it's in my own quiet time or, or if I hear somebody else read a text it's hard for me to to hear it or to read it without immediately thinking how would I teach this how would I preach this that's just one of the, when you're a preaching pastor, I guess that's just sort of one of the things that, that happens. I think I've almost forgotten what it's like to hear scripture without that additional thought process immediately happening in my mind. How am I going to, how would I preach this? How would I teach it? So, so I know that I'm different than most of you in that regard. Most of you aren't preaching pastors. So I'm curious, as you read that text, as we read it out loud, does it give you any of the same sudden sort of muscle tension in your body that it gives to me? Some of you are giggling. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume that that's, that's a yes, right? Um, I read a text like this, and again, I'm thinking, not only what is it saying, but how would I teach this text? And, and a part of me wants to go, yeah, this is gonna be challenging, right? Um, so let's just acknowledge that up front. This is a challenging text. And I think a lot of us bristle a little bit when we come against New, text- New Testament passages, especially that deal with the relationships between wives and husbands. And and some of us bristle because we think when we read anything in scripture that has to do with marriage, maybe our first thought is, my marriage uh, probably doesn't reflect the kind of godliness that the Bible would put up as the ideal for marriage. And so maybe you bristle against uh, hearing another sermon or another passage on marriage because you know it's going to sort of bring to light uh, the failures of your own marriage. And sort of again, right, like, oh, another, another one of these. Maybe some of you bristle that way. And some might bristle because you're not married. And so you think, this passage has not, nothing to do with me. This isn't relevant to me at all. Or, or maybe you hear a passage or any passage on marriage, and, and, and maybe you bristle because it makes you feel like there's something you don't have. Maybe something that you're missing out on. So again, there's lots of different reasons to bristle. And by the way, if any of those describe you that I just said, I want to assure you that this passage is absolutely relevant to you. This sermon will be relevant to you as well, and I I hope you're encouraged by it, all right? But let's talk about why most people bristle when we read a text like this. It's because we hear words in it like submit and obey. We hear... Uh, gentle and quiet spirit and weaker vessel in regards to the wife and those terms brush up against our cultural sensibilities right uh, they brush up against our cultural sensibilities and we, we think about gender we think about gender roles specifically in marriage in our, in our, in our culture maybe more than ever those words smack as foreign and uh, unwanted right So, if you're feeling a little tense about that this morning, I want to just encourage you, take a deep breath with me. Ready? (sighs) Take a deep breath with me. Because there's more to what Peter is saying here, and there's more to what the Holy Spirit, who inspired him, I believe, has in mind for us than just to focus on gender roles in marriage. There's more to the text than that. There's something here about the posture of the Christian life. And it applies to all of us, and so we need to keep hearing it. I want you to remember the context. So again, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, you've missed out on some of this context. But here's what we've been talking about. A driving theme of 1 Peter is this. How do you live as believers in a non-believing world? How do we live as believers in a pagan world, in a world that, in their case, is is, is pre-Christian? This epistle was originally written, again, in the first century to brand-new Christians are living. This is, these are not uh, Jews in Jerusalem. These are these are Gentile people who are living out in the in the Greco-Roman world. They're actually in what we would know today as modern-day Turkey. And these these people. So their background was they were they were pagan. Uh, they 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 were they were not you know familiar with the the God of the Old Testament. They'd recently come to faith in Christ, as the gospel is. Moving out into the the far flung regions of the world, there and they're now learning what does it what does it mean to live as Christians in this context? This is a a pre-Christian, very pluralistic culture that didn't understand their devotion to holiness. It didn't understand their the, the exclusivity of their of their claim that Jesus alone is Lord. Right, pluralistic, polytheistic culture. These these. These claims of the Christians and the Christian life were shocking in that context. And so because of their transformation to, or by the gospel to this new Christian life, their new lifestyle was very countercultural. They, they stood out like sore thumbs. And so Peter's writing to let them know, look, you, because of this, you should expect pushback. You should expect trials in life. You should expect persecution from the other members of your society. That's a normal part of the Christian life. The Christian life is countercultural in that way. It, it pushes against idolatries. It pushes against deeply held values of the pagan world. But he also writes to encourage them that there is gospel purpose in their sufferings and in their trials. That that the gospel is at at work in those difficult circumstances and sufferings and that the greater purpose of that that gospel work is to reveal that that the gospel produces fruit through suffering. It produces fruit through persecution. That power is found in weakness in the way of Christ, which is the opposite way of thinking from the way of the world where power is found in dominance, right? Right? So by submitting themselves to those trials, to those persecutions, he's actually calling the believers there to serve those who treat them unjustly. And in serving them, and not resisting them, but in trying to love them and to do good towards them, they can actually demonstrate and proclaim, even to their persecutors, that there is a better reality, the way of Jesus. Peter reminds them, this is chapter one, you have a living hope. You have a hope that is firmly fixed on your new identity as citizens of God's kingdom. You are full heirs of all of God's blessings. You are his children. And because you have all that the Father has to offer you, fully secured in Christ, the value of this world's fleeting approval no longer needs to hold you captive. It's temporal. What we have is eternal. So he reminds us that we can endure suffering. And then he gives us the chief reason why we can endure suffering. It's because Christ has also suffered for us. This is the example of Jesus. He endured humanity's persecution and rejection of him, even to the point of death. Because in his subjection, in his humiliation, unbeknownst to us, he was able to accomplish that work. He died the death that we deserved. He bore the wrath of God on the cross as our substitute. He served us. He served us by allowing us to persecute him so that through his suffering, we could be healed. That's, that's, our, that's our, our motivation. So as Christians, we carry on that same gospel witness now in the world. We serve the world, though the world might persecute us, that they may ultimately be healed, that they might see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. That's where we've been, right? And that's the context in which we read here in chapter 3. So I said, as as we started last week, that as we move into chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's getting specific about the kinds of relationships in which believers are most likely to experience opposition, persecution, and suffering. And namely, he's bringing up situations where there's unjust authority that may exist in our lives. Unjust authority. So he, he highlights the government. We looked at that in chapter 2 last week. He, he highlights relationships as, as well within the household. And we looked at the difficult relationship of household slavery. And then now today, he's also highlighting another household relationship where unjust authority may press on us, and it's in relationships between husbands and wives. So as we examine this, I want you to keep that context in mind and remember that the overall tone of the letter up to this point is speaking to Christians who are being treated unjustly by non-believers. So when we talk about wives and husbands, we have to recognize that Paul's not or excuse me, Peter is not speaking really into uh, ideal marriages here. He's primarily concerned with less-than-ideal marriages, and he's telling these Christian women in particular, "How do you reflect Christ in, in these less-than-ideal marriages?" So let's examine the text in that light, all right? And as we do that, I'll, I'll do my best to bring some application that's relevant to all of us. So he begins by addressing wives in the church. Look back at, first, at verse 1. And he says here, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Likewise, so he's tying us back into the context of what he's been saying before. In the same way, in other words, he's saying that all believers are commanded to submit to every human institution, to government, slaves to masters. He's saying wives, likewise, have that same posture in the way that you relate to your husbands. In particular, he's going to be talking about unbelieving husbands here. Have that same mindset of, of, of serving them, even the unjust ones, as he's talked about with, with slave masters even, right? With the, with the intent of directing them to see Christ. Likewise, the chief reason he gives for this subjection is to follow and proclaim the example of Jesus in the world. Let's look back at it, because I think it's important that we don't just gloss over this. But chapter 2, verse 21 he goes, at, he, he goes to great lengths here to, to point to this example of Jesus in the world. Verse 21 of chapter 2. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the takeaway from last week's message as we looked at that was this, is is that as Christians we should be able to say, I will submit as I continue to serve society's best interest. And what is society's best interest? What's in their best interest? To be exposed to the gospel. to be be pointed to Jesus. So I'm going to continue to submit to even unjust authority here that they might see Christ even if I suffer because that's what Christ has done for me. That's what he did so that the gospel might have full effect in my life. And my goal is to see the gospel have full effect in the lives of others. So again, the tone of this seems to be written primarily for those in unjust situations so in the same way, wives are called to be subject to their husbands even if their husbands are unjust. Now we'll talk a little bit more about what he's getting at here and what he's not getting at here because I, I don't want uh, gl- I don't want to uh, present a case here because he's not for tolerating all kinds of injustice, injustice or abuse. But he's talking about kind of like normal patterns of marriage when a non-believer is married to a believer and the frictions that come up in situations like that, all right? And he's highlighting a, a few important examples. Now, this, these examples have to do with, with, again, recognizing some cultural realities here, what it would be like for a non-believing woman to be married, excuse me, for a believing woman to be married to a non-believing man. Remember, he's already been careful to admonish Christians that our role is not to subvert the social order. Look back again at chapter two, verse twelve. Here he's talking about, uh, uh, you know, government authorities. He's about ready to talk about that. And he says, he says, uh, as you, as you, as Christians are living as, as believers in a Gentile world. Verse twelve: Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look also down at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So he's already admonished us. Our, our, our role is not to try to subvert the order in society by you know, using our freedom as a cloak for evil and pushing back, but rather to just to, to do good, to submit ourselves to those institutions and authorities. Now, what, what has that got to do with marriage? Well, in, in, in first century Roman culture, uh, there was a, a value that everybody, everybody held, which was the Pax Romana, which is Latin for Roman peace. You've got to keep the peace. Right? The Romans were not keen on rabble-rousers or anything that would, that would disrupt the order of society. And one of the things that they were most uh, suspicious of Whereas they went and they conquered different lands, especially to the east, they, they were conquering people who held different religious beliefs. And so they were very suspicious of these suspect eastern religions who were often uh, accused of disrupting that Pax Romana. So there was a definite concern that the Christian religion, rooted in a monotheistic declaration that Jesus alone is king, Jesus alone is Lord, could be very disruptive to the Pax Romana. Now, one of the ways that that that, that could be displayed and that disruption to order could happen is when when a, uh, a, a man and a woman get married, it was expected that the woman follow the religious customs and practices of her husband. So if your husband's not a believer and all of a sudden you become a believer in Jesus and you're following Jesus and you're going to church on Sundays, that could be seen as highly scandalous and highly disruptive. That could be embarrassing to your husband. So Peter is trying to help them to say, look, don't be, be cautious. Uh, be, be, be vigilant about, about the way that you show honor to and respect to your husband don't put him in a position where he's going to be put to shame or embarrassed that doesn't point him to Jesus that just stirs up controversy and division so he recognizes this and he instructs them to, to be subject for the Lord's sake then to, to every institution, the, the marriage institution as well he's culturally sensitive now why does that matter? He makes it clear that following the example of Jesus when unjustly treated is not only the best way to affect a society that is ruled by pagan governments or pagan masters or pagan employers, but it's also the best way to affect change in the home when married to a non-Christian husband. What is his goal for these husbands? Look again at the first two verses of chapter 3. Likewise, wife, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He's, his desire is to see their husbands come to Christ. And he's saying it's not likely to happen if they see their Christian wives as subversive and disrespectful. But when they see someone who's willing to serve and honor them, despite the differences, there's something compelling, potentially, towards the gospel in that. Remember what he said in chapter 2 about unbelievers who've rejected the cornerstone, who've rejected Jesus? He said they stumble because they disobey the word. That's chapter 2, verse 8. So I think what he's saying here is, if they won't listen to the word... Let them be won over without a word. Subjection for the Christian wife, then, is the posture of serving her husband with respectful and pure conduct in the hope that he'll see her good work and give glory to God on the day of visitation. Now, how specifically will she serve her non-believing husband? He gives some examples here. Look back at verse 3. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Don't let your adorning be external. What's, 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 why, is, why does he say that? What's important about that? Well again, there's some cultural sensitivity here that that we're gonna have to step into first century thought because it's different than our own. But in first century Roman culture, if a woman was to go out in public adorned with her makeup and her high heels and her dress and her hair all done up uh, and she was married, that was actually a signal that her marriage was, was being dishonored, in other words, there was, a, there was a communication associated with that kind of adornment that, that, that speaks of an availability or a disrespect or a dishonor towards one's husband. Uh, the, the, again, it's different in our culture, right? That we, don't, we don't think of that today, but that, that would have been what was communicated here. So, again, if, if you've got women who are, who are believers and they're, maybe they're heading off to church to be with the church on a Sunday morning and they're, they're, they're going out with their gold earrings and their hair done and their, their makeup on, it could have been scandalous and, again, reflect badly back on their husbands. And so he's saying, again, we're not here to create that kind of controversy, that's not helpful. What does he implore instead? He says, let your beauty be the hidden person of the heart, your adornment there, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What's he advocating for here? He's not advocating for silence. What he's advocating for is he's advocating for a fruit of the spirit, right? Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. He's saying, exemplify the the fruit of the Spirit and the example of Christ, who was gentle and lowly, who, who was not loud and rabble rousing, but was quiet, even in the face of unjust treatment. I think what he's saying here, and he's pointing to here, is something that it's not a female virtue to be gentle and quiet, it's a Christian virtue. He wants them to display Christ in their conduct. We can look at this and say, what does submission not mean by by reading between the lines here? Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband thinks. How do I know that? Because in verse 1, we're told here, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them don't obey the word. He's speaking to women who do obey the word, who do believe the word. So it's not about thinking the same and agreeing with everything that your husband thinks. And it's not about trying to necessarily change him, right? Be subject to your own husband, so that even if some obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Trusting the Lord for change, but not, not necessarily you trying to change. So there's hope here for changing both husbands And the culture that has made them act the way they act, or act the way that Peter is encouraging them to act. Is he telling them to submit to their husbands just to prop up cultural norms of male dominance and female oppression? No. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He's advocating social change in ways that run counter to natural thinking. He's saying, be like Jesus. And if you're like Jesus, you're going to aim to change society, not by asserting power over it, but by serving it to bring about change through the heart. And then he finally points to the example of Sarah, Abraham's wife in Genesis. And this is an interesting thing for him to point to. Let's look at, again, what he says here. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He points to Sarah, Abraham's wife, again back from the book of Genesis. It's an interesting thing I say to point to because if he's, if he's looking to point to an ideal marriage, this is not the greatest marriage to highlight, Right? So I think it's helpful to recognize that and and think about what is it that he's actually pointing to here. Abraham was not the best husband. We don't have a full record of all of their marriage. We have glimpses into certain, certain chapters of their lives together, and some of those glimpses are not very good, right? Abraham encouraged his wife to lie and to act like his sister. He put her in a very compromising and dangerous situation in order for her to do that and sarah wasn't the ideal wife all the time either right she she offered up to her husband her servant hagar and said here sleep with her so that we can have a kid not the most ideal marriage so why point it out because he's actually pointing to a specific moment there's only one moment that we can really point to in Genesis to see Sarah's obedience to her husband. And it was in that moment of him unjustly asking her to lie. (laughs) He was treating her unjustly. And yet she submitted herself to that unjust treatment. It says she called him Lord. That's little L Lord, right? It's not God Lord, not big L Lord. But in other words, she called him her master. She submitted to that authority. Peter's application for his audience in submission, again, does not mean submitting your entire will to your husband. Sarah called him, again, Lord with a little L, not a big L. She hoped in God, it says. It doesn't mean that she gets her spiritual strength from her non-believing husband. Verse 5 here, Peter talks about, again, hoping in God. Rather, she gets strength not from her husband, but for her husband. Her strength is the Lord. And it doesn't mean acting out of fear. He says, look, being in in an unjust marriage, in a difficult marriage, can be certainly frightening, but don't be afraid. Again, why? Because your hope is in God. You're entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, even if your husband does not. The goal is to emulate and display Christ. And then he turns to the husbands and he says, and by the way, the tone now shifts from talking primarily to wives who are married to unbelievers to addressing husbands who are believers, right? Because he's talking to men in the church, they clearly are believing men. It says, how can husbands act in a way that likewise demonstrates the love of Christ through sacrificial service towards their wives? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, demonstrating the love of Christ Through sacrificial service towards their wives. In other words, yes, women can be in really dangerous situations in their marriages, but not if they're married to you, Christian men. You should be different. Your relationship to your wife should be marked not by this cultural dominance and and, uh, and, 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 and uh, sort of the, the chauvinistic patterns of the first century world around you, but rather living with your wives in an understanding way. Quit trying to, to make her just always have to understand you, as was common culturally. No, you, you understand her. You show honor to her. Again, countercultural thinking show honor to her how as a weaker vessel what does that mean i think it i think it means probably two things uh legitimately one would be this there's a generalization being made here that's generally true most men are physically stronger than their wives and because they're physically stronger than their wives they can do great harm to their wives if they want to assert that dominance uh, over them, right? Now I know that's not always true. I've met a few women in my life who could probably take me, right? But 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 let's be honest, I've met very few women like that, right? I'm not no offense to women. I'm just I'm a pretty big dude, right? And so and so he's saying, look, like there yes, there is opportunity for abuse. In marriages, but not Christian marriages. It's easy to dominate a woman, but not in a Christian marriage. Treat her with honor as the weaker vessel. And I think there's another way that we can interpret the weaker vessel imagery here, and that's that's that that what is fine, what is precious, is often most fragile, right? Like like the, the china in my grandmother's china hutch, is far more fragile than the plastic plates and tumblers that i normally eat off of it's weaker but it's far more precious right and i think he has those ideas in mind here your wife is is precious she is to be honored she's to be cherished here and is there any sense in which there's a uh a a hierarchy here no because he's saying She's an heir with you of the grace of life. There's an equality in Christian marriage. We are equally in Christ. And if you don't treat her in those ways, he says, your prayers will be hindered. Christian husbands, if if we don't have fellowship with our wives, that's honorable, we won't have fellowship with God. So he's addressing behavior. He's addressing attitudes in marriage. But I think it's worth noting that Peter doesn't give any more specific rules or guidance on how husbands and wives are to relate to one another outside of simply saying, honor one another. Honor one another. Why why is that important? Because there are there are going to be cultural differences. In our culture today, it would be really weird if a woman called her husband Lord. It's weird. Don't do it, right? What what that's communicating for Sarah to say to, to Abraham, it's communicating she's honoring him, right? In our culture, it would communicate something different than that right? It, it, in, in this culture, it was, it, was, it was communicating something, like I said before, to, you know, to wear gold jewelry and makeup and do your hair. In our culture, it doesn't communicate those same things. So he's not laying rules here that are, that are sort of universally to be applied across every marriage and every culture. Women, don't ever do your makeup, don't ever do your hair, just be gentle and quiet people. There's going to be cultural differences, and there's going to be individual differences. I'm a committed complementarian, all right, meaning this. I believe that it's biblically uh, clear that men and women are different, that men and women have different roles, that particularly within the home and in the church, like, there is a spiritual leadership given to husbands and to elders. There's There's a difference there, all right? However, my marriage, which is committed to that same complementarity, and my wife is committed to that too, my marriage is going to look different than yours. Because my wife and I are different people than you are. Right? So don't let anybody tell you That there are very specific ways in which this kind of honor has to be displayed in a home. There are specific rules that have to be followed. It's not necessarily the case. What is the case is, are you and your spouse together seeking to honor one another and point to Jesus in the way that you relate? Peter doesn't lay anything more on us than that. I think it's to say we're not to focus on the windshield— but to look through it, right? If the windshield is what he says here about these specific relationships that we're in, there's stuff to be gleaned from looking at the windshield, but the point isn't to look at it, it's to look through it to get to what it points to in Christ. Look through the windshield. If we get hung up on the details, we'll miss the point of what's on the other side. It po- what points to Jesus? Jesus. What points to his sacrifice, his humility, his servanthood? The point is to honor everyone and thereby bring glory to Jesus. Not every marriage is the same, nor are the cultural considerations the same, but the principle of demonstrating our freedom in Christ through servanthood, that's always the same, that's always the same. The goal of of doing that for the Lord's sake Is always the same. And by the way, when we focus on the windshield, instead of looking through to what it's supposed to point to, it leads to a lot of unnecessary strife, doesn't it? You know, if you show me a Christian woman who's upset or hesitant about the possibility of being uh, subject to a godly man, a good and godly husband, and there are lots of Christian women who are hesitant about that. Maybe some of you are hesitant about that. I guess I would say this. I I, wish I could show you 10 women who would, who would probably give anything to have a godly husband worthy of that kind of voluntary submission and honor. And if you show me a, a, a man who thinks that passages like this give him license to be chauvinistic, Or domineering over his wife and there are plenty of men who use passages like this to validate that kind of uh, arrogance I'll show you overwhelming New Testament evidence that you're actually called to love and to cherish and to nurture her and to lay down your life for hers because apart from that kind of Christ-like sacrificial, cruciform service, God will not regard you at all. I think what Peter's trying to say in all of these different relationships, marriage, household relationships, even slave-master relationships, relationships to government, all of these, he's saying the gospel produces a new way to relate to one another. It, it changes us. It, it moves us away from the, 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 uh, the common dominant view of power to a posture of service and weakness that points to where true power lies, where true freedom lies. It changes us. It makes us, makes us new, and it demands that we then follow in the gentle and lowly ways of the Son of God who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So saying that, how does this relate to everyone else, whether you're married or not? Peter, again, is pointing to a posture of the Christian life. He's talking to a people who are, yes, you are, you are living in a world that is, that is not Christian, and it's going to press hard against you. And he's saying that's normal. That's normal. We're called to, we're called to serve it. We're called to love it. And in your growth as a Christian, as you, as you understand what it means to take that Christ-like posture, have you learned in your growth as a Christian, have you learned in such a way to absorb insult, to absorb pain, to absorb suffering? Because that's what we're called to be as Christians. The cross is the pattern by which we're called to live. I think he would say to us here, if you only think in terms of your own rights, you will always find yourself on the end of bitterness. Always. Because nobody cares about your rights. And God doesn't call us to defend them. He calls us to give them away. And in that we find freedom and joy and hope and love. We're called to look to Jesus as our example. Now before I close, let me go back and say Peter is not addressing um, high-level abuses here. He's not. That's not part of his thinking in this passage. So, he, so I hope you don't take away in any way from a message like this or a passage like this. If I'm being physically abused, I'm called to just be quiet and submit to it. That's not what he's saying. If I'm being sexually abused, um, if I'm if my if my spouse is cheating on me, right, that's not the kind of injustice that he's talking about in text like this the bible has other things to say about those kinds of abuses what he's talking about though again are those just sort of those normal rubs especially for those who are married to a non-believer and he's saying point him to jesus point him to jesus and what does jesus what does pointing to jesus look like do me a favor just close your eyes And listen, I'll close with this, Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to close in prayer by praying the prayer of St. Francis, who said this. Pray it along with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let me sow faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. And where there is sadness, let me sow joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not So much seek to be consoled as to console. Seek to be understood as to understand. Seek to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Christ's name.